0: this this is called the oil patch and this is the Kalinga oil field and uh, this is uh, Kalinga is actually coaling station a
1: oil was actually discovered here and today there's a whole bunch of industrial
2: oil derricks covering a huge part of a barren desert area. The plane would have been able to see these oil derricks as it was coming in here this way. And because he had crash landed that airplane twice before, it, it makes sense that one could actually, you know, you could surmise from that, that he was more than likely looking for a strip of dirt to land on. You know, there's nothing you could do. crash landed it two Twice? <laughs> that same exact airplane he had crash landed twice before.
1: Okay, so it wasn't the exact plane, but the kind of plane, a Douglas DC-3, which back in the 30s and 40s was a pretty revolutionary plane. Frank Atkinson, the pilot, was used to flying and crash landing the DC-3. So he thought he could land that plane again.
3: And he might have been able to, if all that was wrong was a plane malfunction. But...
0: Plane wing broke off? And it started spinning out of control and throwing people out. This
3: is it. Yeah. So it. We're here?
0: Yeah, we cool. are here.
3: We're going through a barbed wire fence. I'm so short. This barely works. <laughs>
0: This is the actual crash site, and this was where the main bodies were at, and dead people were everywhere, right where we're standing.
3: Larry wasn't born when the plane crashed, but growing up, he heard stories about that
1: day and about how his family raced to the scene to help in any way they could. Larry's mom and his Aunt June were little girls at the time. His Aunt June was nine years old when she saw the wreckage, and is the only surviving witness in Larry's family.
2: June was standing, you know, not too far off here looking at and eyewitnessing witnessing all of this.
1: June is turning 80 soon,
3: and she still remembers it all in very graphic detail. So we called her to get her account of what happened.
4: We saw bushes with brains hanging on it, and my thought then, as a little girl, that looks like decorating a Christmas tree. It was just all over with these brains.
3: At the time, June didn't realize the impact this would have on her beyond the trauma of
1: witnessing a crash. Do you remember as you got older learning more about it?
4: I do remember because my mother was following it in the papers. And I remember her shortly after that saying, this has become an international incident because they've buried all of these Uh, people together in a mass grave, then that really occurred to me how really terrible that was, that they were just demeaning these people because they weren't us. By leaving their name off, I finally came to see what an insult it was.
1: Tim also felt like the 28 people who died that day were not treated humanely or equal to the families of the American passengers. So he wanted to right that wrong. Tim felt that these braceros were
3: sort of invisible in life. And then in death, they weren't even given a name.
2: And some big dream I might have in the future maybe put us some kind of a headstone marker with their names on it.
1: So first, he went to the cemetery in Fresno where the mass grave is. He wanted to see the plot. So, he asked Carlos Rascón, the cemetery director, to show him. After they walked over
3: and saw the tiny plaque in the back of the cemetery that read 28 Mexican citizens, Tim asked Carlos to see the cemetery's ledger of names. Surely, the cemetery would have a record of who was buried there,
1: right? But when Carlos pulled it out of the archives…
5: So it just said, you know, um, Mexican nationals 28 times.
3: At this point, Carlos also wanted to find their names. He wanted to know who was buried in his cemetery. So Carlos joined Tim on his search, which led them to one more place, the Hall of Records in Fresno. That's the place that keeps
1: all birth and death certificates. And it was there that they were finally able to get a list of names. But... They quickly realized that list was
3: unreliable. In Mexico, you usually have two last names, your maternal last name and paternal last name, and so many of them were treated as first names. There was somebody with
1: the last name Lara that was turning to a woman named Laura, and many of the names in Spanish were turned into Italian names. So they knew right away this list was botched.
6: the
5: fact that they were misspelled, it kind of maybe shows a little bit of who might have been behind
1: the pin or the books. Sure enough. There had always been a list with the names. But why didn't it make it to the cemetery? I would think that it just
5: it was a very sad oversight, I would say.
1: So there they were
3: with an actual list of names in their hands for the first time, and it was wrong.
1: But then, Carlos remembered that every November, on the Day of the Dead, someone came by to leave flowers at the mass grave. Someone was visiting a loved one. This was Tim's first real clue that these people were not totally forgotten. He wanted
3: to find who that person was, So Tim put out a call on the local paper in Fresno that said, if you or someone you know is related to any of the 28 Mexican passengers who died in that plane crash in 1948, contact me. And someone did. That's coming up after the break.
7: Okay, and we'll take a break here, too. Play the rest of that later in the show. So far, Tim Tim Hernandez, the uh, Chicano writer, has decided to find out the names of those people, and not leave them just being deportees. Great story. Okay, here's some poetry by Jack Kerouac. Steve out. I
6: had
7: a slouch hat top
8: one time. I had a slouch hat too one time. The old slouch hat. I just keep walking around and he keeps walking around with me, around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained, I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I uh, had to carry through many rainy days, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day and the house dick might have saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties, slacks with peculiarities. I couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. Wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. (laughs) Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh no, those won't do. And I walked out wrapped the slacks around my waist, took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman, no, those won't do, good afternoon, and walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club, Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other, Dartmouth Club, University Club. Always barred the Yacht Club, cause it was a little over my kin. Cause the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, Good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of Who's Who, but a Who's Who also have to be a member of Who's Who in New York in the special clique of Who's. <laughs> I'd get in the athletic club many times. And I'd go up in the billiard room, and I would wander back around the room, hands in back, and Every coat rack I backed up against, to feel for the wallet. One day I walked out of there with ten wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon a very dignified-looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, "Who?" And I says, "Man told me his name while we we're drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room at the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go." Well, tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hardly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast-offs of the hotel, which they collect in rummage cells. May now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. I seen that hat by moonlight, yeah. I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed, half inch from here. Double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turn and look at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a paint sneer with a long black ribbon to my buttonhole, and I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that moustache and that pince-necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally, had to pack it in because it was too well-worn. Pince-nez was in a coat I stole. Moustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother came come to see me. She says, Oh, no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb, and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine, and I come down full of goofballs, too. This guy had a ventriloquist doll, and he gave out this Texas Gweenin routine. Hello, sucker. We like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger your roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll, and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Wound up in his room, gave him a shot of morphine. Out on the highway, I thumbed a ride into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore. So we went in the back and he had corn on the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I always hear people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pen upon, allotted, everything. As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick, bought a safety pin in Buffalo and took a shot in the toilet. Come out and saw a fella shaving, his coat hanging there. Hung my own coat and gave his coat a brush in my hand. Felt his wallet, washed my hands, went out and took off with the wallet. So I started out on a shoplifting campaign in Buffalo. It was about 1910. Wasn't very experienced at it. Started out with a top coat and sold it in the taxi cab stand. Next day, I decided to get myself some suits and I went up and I had a suit box and I walked about and put the suit box in one of the dressing rooms, looked and fooled in the mirror went out and I hawked those two. Next day, like a damn fool, go out to the same store, but I got a newspaper instead of a suit box. Thought I'd try a new routine. Two guys kind of watching me. I went in and wrapped myself up, two suits, went in the elevator. Bottom gentleman tapped me on the arm. Will you come with me, please? And the county jail, they ate breakfast. You got oatmeal with one spoonful of molasses. For lunch, stew, mostly bones, graveyard stew. And for supper, dinner at night, beans. And you couldn't smoke.
9: Tampoco es que yo exija Ni tierras, ni riquezas Más que estar recibiendo Me gusta regalar Tan solo estoy pidiendo
7: It's a random set. We had, uh, first of all, Jack Kerouac from an album that he made with uh, Steve Allen, uh, the pianist. Uh, Poetry for the Beat Generation. That was Slouch Hat by Jack Kerouac. And then from uh, Jenny Rivera, the late Jenny Rivera, late of... uh, Born and raised in Long Beach, California. And the bad news this week for her ex, Esteban Loyasa. Loyasa. Hope I'm getting that right. Who was a pitcher uh, for a while, a very accomplished pitcher. An all-star. Started the all-star game for the American League. Won 20 games with the Chicago White Sox. Uh was arrested in just across the border here in California with a big catch of uh, cocaine that was in a uh, in a secret room in his house Jenny sang, ni princesa ni esclava I'm not a princess but I'm not a slave just a woman and John Fromer there another late Comrade, brother, John Fromer, uh, with We Do the Work. What I want to do now is finish the deportees uh, documentary. Uh, Tim Z. Hernandez's attempt to find out who those 28 deportees were, the ones who are sung about in the famous Woody Guthrie song. Here we go.
10: What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does
2: it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or
9: wherever you get your podcasts.
3: whose bodies had been buried in a mass grave under a plaque that read 28 Mexican citizens
1: and not long after Tim put out the call he got a response
11: someone gave me a piece of newspaper and said look they're talking about your grandpa's uh, plane crash
3: this is Jaime Ramirez we met him in Fresno with Tim
11: and i started reading it and i got my computer and i started
3: Jaime went to his computer and started writing I... Tim an email he wrote in Spanish, I know about the accident because that's where my maternal grandfather, named Ramon Paredes, and my uncle, Guadalupe Ramirez Lara, were killed.
1: Jaime then included his address,
11: my phone number, and ended with, if
1: you need information, just let me know.
11: Anything that you want to know, just yeah. Come. What do you need to know?
2: I'm right here. I was like, wow. And so that was really hopeful. Your email, as short as it was and as quick as it was, it had so much hope inside of it, and so I was excited to, to meet you right away, yeah. And not only is
1: Jaime a surviving family member, but Tim didn't have to go to Mexico. Jaime was right there in Fresno. Jaime owns a restaurant called Ole Frijole, and
3: everyone in Fresno knows the restaurant. Most of the employees there are related to Jaime and they're descendants of two of the passengers from the plane crash, his uncle and his grandpa.
2: So when he first told me that that was his restaurant, I said, no, I said, you're kidding, because I've been there since I was a kid. You know, I've been going there. I've, yeah. I'm sure I've seen you before. And yeah. That's my restaurant. And I said, yeah, it's legendary. And he said, you you were yeah, looking, it is. You were
11: looking for me, and I was right there. I know, I know.
1: And Jaime was there
3: all along in more than one way. Remember the flowers that someone was putting on the mass grave on Dia de los Muertos?
2: And I said, wow, you know, I wonder who that person is. Later on, I would
11: learn that it, it was, was. you? Yeah. Yes, I was in Salinas.
3: It was Jaime. He's the one that was putting flowers on the grave. He was Tim's first found family member. And turns out, he was also Tim's golden ticket.
11: The newspaper that my grandmother kept, and I kept it, I don't know why.
3: So, here's what happened. Not long after the crash in 1948, a small Spanish-language newspaper published an article that listed every passenger with the correct spelling of both last names.
11: And they had all the names and where they were from in Mexico, the little towns.
1: This was it. Three years of searching, and Tim finally had their names.
3: paper, in Faro. Very old. It looks like it's a front page, right?
2: Uh, yeah, it is. It is the front page.
3: Yeah. Uh-huh. So nice it's a front page and in the front page you have the two photos of a priest <laughs> uh, looking the over the, the bodies yeah. for the funeral service. On the right side is the column that has all of the names. First, last name, where they're from, the names of their parents or wives, if they knew them. Wow. I'm going to try to translate that as beautifully as it is written in Spanish. Mm -hmm. On Saturday, the 31st of January, that just passed, there was a funeral for the 28 compatriots that were chosen by destiny to perish in an unfortunate accident near Colinga, California. Like, just the way that this mm-hmm. is written is super, like, old oh, it's, newspaper, it's very poetic but it's really also. poetic. It's
2: very poetic. And in fact, even the, even the um, biblical sort of— um, Seeing how the Spanish-language paper uh, wrote see. about the 28
1: Mexican victims made it even more clear just how differently their deaths were treated and how their remains were handled. Twenty-eight families without closure
3: without being able to have a physical place to mourn. And although, yes, most of the families knew how their sons, brothers, and husbands had died, they didn't get to have a funeral or a place to visit their loved one, lay flowers, just grieve. And as any cemetery director would know, Carlos says there is an importance to being able to visit someone's grave.
5: It's just uh, a sense of emptiness, like, wait a minute, you know, it's not just... Uh, some John Doe that got, you know, no family, indigent, nobody knows. There was information. And so it left kind of a blank there, like, wait a minute.
3: So now, with the full names spelled correctly, Tim, Carlos, and Jaime
1: could start the process of making a proper headstone with all the names on it. And they would also travel to Mexico to try and find other families. Tim wanted to tell them that their loved ones were no longer in a nameless mass grave.
3: So, the first family Tim wanted to meet was Jaime's. Remember, both his grandfather and great uncle died in the crash. So, Tim and Jaime got on a plane and flew to Guanajuato in central Mexico. They were there on the 67th anniversary of the crash.
12: Jaime set up
1: a meeting with his family, and right at 10.40 a.m., the time when the plane crashed, they had a moment of silence. Mm. During the trip,
3: Jaime told Tim a little more about his grandfather and great uncle. Guadalupe and Ramon grew up in Charco de Pantoja, a farming community in Guanajuato. When they got older, they both owned land and farmed garbanzo beans, wheat, and alfalfa.
1: But their town struggled to get an irrigation system in place. They didn't have the money to get it set up. That's when the idea to go work in the fields in California came up. So they both
3: went back and forth working as braceros and bringing money back to their town.
11: Do you remember stories growing up about them? Yeah. It's my, my, tío. Ahí la Sí. Era muy contento. Le gustaba andar a caballo. Y, y le gustaba tirar balazos. <laughs> sí, le gustaba, sí. His
3: uncle liked horse riding and to just like my, shoot
11: up bullets in the air. O, decía, bueno.
3: His uncle was so blonde that they called him corn hair yes. like <laughs> pelos de lote. <laughs> Jaime's family is split between Fresno, California and Guanajuato, and these are the types of stories that have been keeping his grandfather alive in Jaime's memory. So for Jaime to tell his family, his mother mostly, that her father would no longer be buried under a nameless headstone? it was life changing
2: now we know who the people are now we know who their lives are who their family are we know how they how they are in, in this community with,
3: so on september us. 2nd it's 2013 like the, the new headstone was unveiled in the cemetery these braceros who were once invisible and forgotten under a mass grave had their names on a big beautiful marble headstone
11: Miguel Negrete Alvarez Francisco Llamas Durán Santiago García Elizondo Rosalio Padilla Estrada Bernabé López García Ramón Paredes González Tomás Aviña de Gracia Guadalupe Ramírez Lara Severo Medina Lara In this
1: moment of having these names carved into stone forever, this is what Tim and Jaime
11: wanted for years. Manuel Calderón Merín, Luis Cuevas Miranda Martín Razo Navarro Ignacio Pérez Navarro Romano Choa Ochoa Apolonio Ramírez Placencia, Alberto Carlos Raígoza, Guadalupe Hernández Rodríguez María Santana Rodríguez Juan Valenzuela Ruiz Cuenceslao Flores José Ruiz José Valdivia Sánchez Jesús Mesa Santos, Valdomero Marcas
2: Around the edges of the headstone are 32 leaves for the song that says, Who are these friends, all scattered like dry leaves? Which brings us back to the song. Who are all these friends now scattered? Folk musician
1: Pete Seeger, just like Tim, was always curious about his friend Woody Guthrie's inspiration for the poem. When Tim was working on this back in 2013, Pete actually gave him a call. Hi,
6: this is Pete Seeger Uh, trying to
5: get a message... I'd like to talk to you.
1: Pete also wanted to know, who were these people? And Tim had the
2: answer. Did you ever think, Pete, you know, singing that song at any point that maybe someday someone would answer, answer that, who are these friends?
13: No. And you took it on as a job
4: that God would want done.
1: Tim wound up meeting Pete in person where he told him the names of the 28 passengers. And then, in
4: commemoration, Pete played Deportee, Plane Wreck at Los Gatos. Goodbye to my Juan. Goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, mis amigos. Jesus y Maria. Tim wouldn't
1: know it, but this would be the last time Pete when, would sing the song. When you... He died a few months later.
4: And
3: And those friends who were scattered like dry leaves had all been memorialized together in the end. The headstone also included the names of the four American crew members, because as Tim saw it, leaving them out would be perpetuating the same kind of omission that erasure that started all of this in the first place.
1: And since Tim had been in touch with the American families for a while, they were able to travel to Fresno and attend the ceremony at Holy Cross Cemetery. Jaime was there too. And at one point,
3: a brown SUV pulled up and Jaime's brother Guillermo got out. He opened the door and helped his 77-year-old mother, Caritina Paredes Murillo, step out. She was a kid when her father died in the crash.
11: My mother also, I think she said that she felt like uh, she was act in the actual burying, yeah. ceremony oh, from...
3: Oh, because she never got to do an actual funeral, so yes. for her this was she, really the yeah. first, as if it was happening like, decades ago. Yes,
11: yes, she felt like that, like she was burying her father.
1: And when you're standing here right now, what are you thinking no about? <laughs>
11: Muy contento, muy contento He's
3: happy that there's recognition and honoring of them finally in this community at least because they didn't really get any recognition or
11: anything anywhere else.
3: They were in darkness, you could say, in the sh- in the shadows almost.
11: Yes, in the shadows, and I'll never forget
2: when we asked her, you know, how do you feel, Caritina? And she said, well, I, I'm crying, and I don't know if they're tears of joy or tears of pain, you know. After hearing the deportee
3: song play a few times during the ceremony, the Ramirez family requested that mariachis play Mexico Lindo y Querido.
11: Mexico Lindo y Querido.
3: <laughs> si muero lejos de ti. Yeah.
11: Que digan que estoy dormido y que me y que traigan. Me traigan. Y sí. Mexico Lindo y Querido. <laughs>
3: Song lyrics say my dear and beautiful Mexico if i die far away from you say that i'm sleeping so they can bring me back to you
6: Mexico
4: lindo y querido
8: si muero
3: After meeting with Jaime's family, Tim continued traveling in Mexico and the U.S., trying to answer Woody Guthrie's question, who are these friends? And as of today, Tim has been able to connect with the relatives of six of the 28 Mexican passengers, so he's still searching.
7: As the chair of the California Latino Legislative Caucus,
13: I rise to recognize a tragic incident that occurred 70 years ago.
3: Two weeks ago, on the 70th anniversary of the crash, the California State Senate held an emotional ceremony to formally recognize, for the first time in history, the 28 Mexican victims of the plane crash. Senator Ben Hueso stood next to Jaime and other surviving family members as they held photos of their relatives. And the Senate didn't forget to honor the man who spent seven years of his life making this all possible.
13: TIM HERNANDEZ DID THE WORK THAT THE GOVERNMENT SHOULD HAVE DONE. But 70 years later, they will be remembered as a valued part of the history of our state.
3: The story was produced by me, Fernanda Chavarri, and Maggie Freeling. It was edited by Nadia Raymond. The Latino USA team includes Marlon Bishop, Andres Caballero, Antonia Serejido, Ginny Montalvo, Janice Yamoka, and Sayer Quevedo. Our engineer and music editor is Cornelius McMoyler. Our production manager is Natalia Fiedelholtz. Our interns are Stephanie Cano and Reese Williams. Special thanks to Tim Hernandez. His book, All They Will Call You, is out now. Our theme music. Was-
13: of my books I don't like Marxists complaining about my looks I don't like Castro insulting members of my sex leftists insisting we got the mystic fix I don't like capitalists selling me gasoline coke. Multinationals burning Amazon trees to smoke. Big corporation take over media mine. I don't like the top of of that are robbing Guatemala banks blind. I don't like the KGB gulag concentration camps. I don't like the Maoist Cambodian death dance million were killed by Stalin, the terrorist war. has killed a Red revolution, forevermore. I don't like anarchists screaming, love is free. I don't like the CIA, they killed John Kennedy. Paranoid tanks sit in Prague and Hungary. I don't like how the revolution paid for by the CIA. Tyranny in Turkey or Korea, 1980. I don't like right-wing death squad, democracy. Police state Iran, Nicaragua yesterday. They say, fair, please, government, keep the secret police off of me. Communism, no hope, capitalism, yeah. Everybody's lying on both sides, yeah, yeah, yeah. The bloody iron curtain of American military power is a mirror image of Russia's red Babel tower. Jesus Christ the spotless but was crucified by the mob. Law and order, heroes. Hired soldiers did the job our power's fine, but innocence has got no protection A man who shot John Levin had a hero-worshipper's connection The moral of this song is that the world is in a horrible place Scientific industry devours the human race in every country armed to your gas and TV, secret masters everywhere bureaucratized for you and me terrorists and police together build the lower class rage propaganda murder manipulates the upper class age. can't tell the difference between the turkey and the provocateur if you're feeling confused Government's in there for sure.
14: That leads him lie And likewise I do fear his death i is all we live so all alone.
15: Why I come to you with the song? In 1810, con el gran grito de pasión, se levantaron con razón. Black and brown fighting together right, on yeah. the day I'll always remember. And el Cinco de Mayo con el grito de gallo, black, white, and brown bleeding together on a day I'll always remember. Because really, it hasn't been that long. So just in case Cat Williams had you guessing, let me kick y'all down with a little history lesson. In the 19th century, while the U.S. promoted degradation, annihilation with its military and U.S. Navy, Mexico got rid of the caste system, voted for its first indigenous president, even getting rid of legalized slavery. The Underground Railroad also ran south, which led black folks to freedom, with Mexico right there to receive them. fighting for tierra, libertad y techo, with adelitas on the front line with bullets across their pecho. In the year 1946, it was the Mendez family that fought against segregation in schools, because before that, they treated us like fools, pushing us out into gangs, wars, and drugs, and then they get pissed off at us when we become crips and bloods. Trabiesos, zutzuras, Pachucos, folkloristas, punks, homeras, haraneras in the heat, haraneras with the bomb-ass beat, talking about what's really going on in the streets. In the 60s, in the streets of Oakland, California, Black Panthers organized for answers. Young lords in New York fought against wars. The Stonewall Rebellion remained true for the rights of the LGBTQ AIM, who was down for native rights with no shame in their game. Grime-raised in LA learning how to fight and doing what's right. In the Campos of California, Filipinos were the first ones to lay down the boycott. Screaming in solidarity, Isang one rise, one fall. You come for one, you come for all. And today, Arizona and Alabama, they don't play. Carving out racist laws like it's made out of clay. I stand with em, Trayvon, Oscar, and Bell, with my mentor Mumia up in the cell, telling you I'd rather be blind than to stay quiet on a day while my people are hunt down like prey.
6: Because
15: my ability to breathe is directly connected to my ability to see. It's not about me, never was, never will be. It's about we. It's time to move, y'all. Movement time.
7: Nice set there. These sets today are very eclectic. Taking little from everywhere. That last one was Las Cafeteras with a condensed version of uh, U.S. history, U.S. and Mexican history, and The admonition that it's movement time, don't stand still. Taj Mahal was next with I Pity the Poor Immigrant, a song that so, for me, encapsulates the belief systems of the people who, not only the people who voted for Trump, but the people who have remained faithful to him as he exposes himself as, uh, well, I can't say the word on the air. I would say a traitor to American democracy. We'll see. I doubt that'll ever be uh, that'll ever be stated or adjudicated. And uh, Allen Ginsberg was before that with his Capital Air, and he did some recordings like that, sort of out loud poetry with uh, Tom Petty. A whole set of uh, poetry along with rock and roll music. I'm going to play something special now. This is called Working, and it's a musical presentation based on a book called, by Studs Turkle, a Chicago journalist and uh, leftist. Uh, who wrote about working. He wrote a book called Working, which he interviewed people about their jobs, about their work. Let's see if we can play some of it here for you. Thank you,
16: Working by Stephen Schwartz and Nina Faso. From the book by Studs Terkel, with songs by Craig Carnelia, Mickey Grant, Mary Rogers, Susan Birkenhead, Stephen Schwartz, and James Taylor, recorded before an audience. L.A. Theatre Works is proud to present the first revised and updated version of this 1970s popular classic, based on Studs Terkel's amazing book about everyday exertion and everyday people. Working is for anyone who has ever punched a clock a cow, or a supervisor, or wanted to. And now, working.
12: Well, I always wanted it's to be a fireman. You know, a lot of guys
5: want to be. I have to be a waitress. Seconds, How else does do the world eight eight eight? I don't I don't want want to me? I started to give when
17: I eight. was eight. I couldn't do much, but every you little bit counts. Every time I get behind, hey somebody, don't you wanna hear the story of my life? One of them movie companies, TV documentaries, won't you come and ask me, please? Tell you what I do with the store. Cause if you pay me a million
5: Don't you wanna hear story of my
6: life?
5: One of them movie companies,
6: TV documentaries. Won't you come and ask me please?
17: Typically in the morning, you wait at the shanty till 7 o'clock. You go in at 7, you start walking your way up the ladder, climbing up the steel. Every two floors, you plank it off. Then you disconnect the bottom of the mast and you tie it to the boom on top of the choking cable. You get a heavy block on the job, probably weighs 200, 250 pounds, something like that. I saw it when I was 18 years old, working structural steel. I worked on towers probably 120, 130 feet high. One of the things they say about somebody with an inferiority complex is they're afraid of heights. So automatically, every iron worker's got an ego. You're doing something that somebody else can't do. And you wear a tool belt. And when you're a kid 18 years old and you have wrenches in like a holster, you're like a cowboy, a sailor. If I put a two by four on the floor, I couldn't knock you off with a stick. But if I put it up 50 feet, and a little gust of wind comes and you overreact, you end up falling off. That's why most ironworkers start off as kids. When you're 18 and just out of school, the guy next to you walks the beam, you're going to try and walk the beam too. Ironworkers very, very rarely fall in the hole. That's what our term is. If somebody falls off a building, they fell in the hole. We talk a lot about it among ourselves. You ironwork long enough, you're going to get some real scares. I notice myself I get a copper taste. You know, when you put a penny in your mouth when you were a kid? You know that taste? It's a taste of fear, I guess. As you get older, you reconcile yourself to the fact that it's easier to drop down and coon across the beam, we call it. It's easier, but you lose all the hair on the inside of your legs. You can always tell an iron worker because they don't have any hair on the inside of their legs. (laughs) Another bad thing. Up here, We don't have any outhouses or anything, so we gotta piss in the columns. Everybody's always drunk the night before, so they're always expelling themselves down these columns. But the problem with that is is that eventually something's gonna happen where you're gonna have to work down below. (laughs) Yeah, and the worst thing in the world is you have to burn something down there. You know, it's like cooking a toilet. But I always knew I was gonna be an iron worker. My older brothers were iron workers, my father was an iron worker, so it was a natural course of events. My father was very disappointed I didn't go to college. We had a college boy at work this summer. One time he saw a book in the back of my pocket, he was amazed. He says to me, you read? (laughs) That's what can get to you sometimes, you know, the non-recognition by other people. To say a man is just a laborer, a woman is just a housewife. It bothers you sometimes. Sometimes, some mornings, I look across the skyline for a building I worked on, say, uh, that office building right there, and I look down and I can see a big fancy car pulling into the parking garage I built.
7: All right, that was a couple of cuts from <clears throat> from a uh, presentation musical actually by based on the story by Studs Turkel called Working. And uh, first we heard uh Hear America Singing, words by Walt Whitman, and second was Ironworker Monologue, guy talking about working 130, 140 feet up in the air and how uh, iron workers don't fall. <laughs> he said, uh, people with inferiority complexes <clears throat> are afraid of heights. Well, that's me. I was looking for some information, uh, writing a piece about early teacher organizing, sort of pre-teachers union Uh, efforts to organize teachers. And I ran into this anti-union I ran into this anti-union website, which was talking about the scandals, union leadership. And they had three different cases of union officials who had absconded with funds. I think one was 400,000 the other was 800,000 the other's were smaller than those, and uh, sort of reproducing that these union union uh, officials had taken money from their membership. A terrible thing, by the way. Certainly not meant to, to allow that to happen or excuse that. But it reminded me of several similar scandals similar in some ways, dissimilar in others. For example, the VW Corporation and other auto manufacturers who were caught um, uh, rigging the ratings for gas mileage, in other words, claiming that the gas mileage in their cars was much higher than it really was, plus the fact that they knew that the gas mileage wasn't that high, but continued to lie about it. Even um, adjusted the, the testing devices so the mileage came out higher and the pollution index was much lower than actual. What about Wells Fargo? A four-billion-dollar scandal there, where Wells Fargo, uh, Wells Fargo workers were encouraged to open bogus bank accounts that that customers hadn't even asked for, and then charging them fees on those accounts. And though there were workers who were doing it, the culpability was traced back up to executive vice presidents of Wells Fargo and it was found that the company had profited to the tune of 4 billion dollars what about Jamie Diamond a banking executive sort of a for a while there he was kind of like the new whiz kid uh, bank president he was articulate he was cute he was uh sort of playful, had a sense of humor. Diamond, one year, reported that he had lost. They didn't know where $6 billion had gone. And his statement to the congressional committee that was investigating the the whole affair was, we just don't know where the money is. $6 billion now. Recently the Congressional Budget Office estimated that the Pentagon had disappeared 1 trillion dollars. There was 1 trillion dollars that the Pentagon in the Pentagon's budget that was lost over a 20-25 year period. 1 trillion dollars. And all the fuss and feathers about offshore accounts which companies move money to offshore places to avoid taxes. If you and I do it, it's tax evasion and it's a bust. A major bust. If they do it, it's called tax avoidance. It's called using the tax code to your advantage. That was estimated at $20 trillion. Now, the Trump administration has bragged about getting some of that money back by, by how? By gifting those corporations with lower tax rates if they'll return their money to the U.S. So while I am definitely upset about union, union officials absconding with uh, their members' money, uh, how how upset are these anti union websites with the theft of 20 trillion, 1 trillion, 6 billion, 4 billion? God knows how much the VW scandal costs. And it's not like these are isolated incidents, they come by all the time. I remember one day in. The, have been the early 2000s when the California State Teachers Retirement System in the blink of an eye lost value to the tune of $500 million, half a billion dollars because Enron had been reporting success, success, keeping its stock price high. And on that day, the stock price had collapsed even the California State Retirement System half a billion dollars poorer. I don't know. It's a matter of of who's really stealing you? Who's got their hand in your pocket? Really? Really? Unions? Hardly. The problem is much higher up within our government and corporate structure. Okay, we got about 10 minutes to go here. I wanted to play some Albert Collins. We discovered Albert Collins this week.
18: Speak of so many things and making a kind of variety of the program. Okay. It requires a lot of different facts of life Uh, that we must uh, know about. One of them frosty, which is and when you think about the various nations of the
7: earth. And the second there was ice pick.
18: There's religions of earth.
7: For Many years, although a master master of the the blues guitar,
18: especially all over the world,
7: Stratocaster,
18: master of the Stratocaster. We have been able to make anything that we want to make, work, do anything we want to do, do, uh,
7: laboring jobs to support himself. And at one point, he he was called in to work on a laboring job at a house where. when Neil Diamond in. lived, <coughs> knows
18: you made the working, working well, class made guy working for a superstar, make a nice little story
7: about that anyway. This is the Bee, remember, one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else Spent worked for a money. dollar they Supposed didn't you get. Had to spend
18: half as much money
7: remember, please, that to if make you make don't have a, a seat money. at the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu
18: wouldn't have to worry about it. finally
7: never but never let anyone in but it don't
18: heart. make sense this is
7: not a friend of labor and when i say labor i it mean it
18: don't make sense this is
7: signing off labor and love where the labor it meets don't the make road sense. see you in 2 weeks no show next
18: when mixed. you
19: for you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat.
10: <laughs> hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers,
16: Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery.
11: Hey, people! This is the Flat Black Plastic Show on Mutiny Radio down at 21st and Florida, in the heart of the sunny Mission. Enjoy.
5: If you can just get your mind together Then come on across to me We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sun From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? Or have you ever been experienced? Well, I have Cry that your little world won't let you go. But who in your measly little world are you trying to prove that you're made out of gold and uh, can't be sold? So uh are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Well,
13: Oh, uh, let me...
1: Everybody should listen to Muni Radio at MuniRadio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things.
14: Are you tired?
13: The crops are all in, and the peaches are rotten. The oranges are packed in the creosote dumps. They're flying them back to the Mexican border to save all their money, then wade back again.
7: Good morning, mutineers. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio on newtonyradio.fm They've
13: done just the same they died in the hills And they died in the valleys Some went to heaven Without any name Goodbye to my one Goodbye Rosalina Adios me mi amigo mighty Maria You won't have a name When you write all they will call you will be deep, or deep Some of us are illegal And others not wanted Our work contracts out And we have to move on hundred miles to the Mexican border. They chase us like rustlers, like
12: outlaws, like thieves.
13: Fireball of thunder, it shook all the hills.
4: Who are all of these dear friends scattered like dry leaves? The radio said
13: they were just deportees. Goodbye I realize,
7: The Labor and Love Show. Welcome to you. Um,
21: Two days passed, past huh? he was waiting for there, the bus and his here. army. Green sat Washington down in, in a booth.
7: Washington.
21: cafe there, the gave his order on. to a girl with a bow in her military. hair. He's a He's little shy, power. so she gave him a smile. He's and he on, said, on. Would you mind sitting down for a while and talking?
12: Working, working on a home Living in a mansion Might live in a dome might- To a pride. You may be a consummate taking prides on the side. Working in a barber shop may know how to gun- Might like to drink milk, might like to eat caviar, might like to eat bread, maybe sleeping on the floor, even on a king size bed. But you got
7: James there, and you know you got to serve somebody. Good morning, everyone. This is the B. Welcome to Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio and Mutiny Radio.fm. Coming at you this morning from 2781 21st Street in the Meadow Meadow, the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco. This is the show where we tell you like it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, wherever you work. You're probably on the menu, and never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning everybody. We had uh, our opening set there. Started out of course with Deportees, Deportees by the Highwayman. Highwayman. None other than Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christofferson. Um, quite a group there. Johnny Cash singing lead there on Just Deportees. Much more about that in a bit. We had, then we had Traveling Soldier by the Dixie Chicks about to the fact that every day somewhere American troops are involved in wars every day this is for those soldiers who are out there and also to get them back home wars where workers of one class shoot down workers of another class thin out the possibility of resistance to capitalism and last we had Etta James Queen of the Blues Gotta Serve Somebody the Bob Dylan classic reminds us that, yes, your indecision, your hesitation serve someone. By just standing around, you're rushing backwards. Okay, now I remarked about that case. We're talking about that case of uh, deportees. And... This is The song, of course, relates the fact that even though <clears throat> these people have come to United States and worked, you know, they're uncelebrated. No one remembers them. Just barely their names, and other than that, they'll be just deportees. The song was written by Woody Guthrie and popularized by Pete Seeger. Since then, it's been recorded by virtually everybody. Uh, in the certainly in the country and western genre. Um, anyway, a, a Chicano writer named Tim Z Hernandez decided that yeah, that wasn't good enough. He wanted to go and find out who these people were. This is part of a uh, an interview on uh, Latino USA, on NPR,
3: here we go. 32 people on the plane, four Americans, including three crew members and an immigration official, and 28 migrant farm workers. Everyone died that morning, all in the same way, but they were not all treated the same after death. The 28 Mexican field workers on that plane were known as braceros. They had come here at the request of the U.S. government and were headed back to Mexico. But didn't make it after the crash only the remains of the four americans were sent back to their families the mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave in california under a tiny plaque that read
11: 28 mexican citizens who died in an airplane accident near colinga
3: 28 mexican citizens that's all they would call them and for decades, that's all there was. No one identified the remains of the 28 passengers. No one asked for their families. No one really paid attention. Until a Mexican-American author came along, and it became personal. From NPR and Futura Media, this is Latino USA. I'm Fernanda Chavarri, guest hosting today's episode where we go back 70 years to find out the names of those 28 unnamed people and find out how one man made it his life mission to give them names. And to do that, I'm joined by
1: producer Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Fernanda. So when you and I found out about this incident that took place 70 years ago, we were talking about how these people were virtually forgotten. They were nameless in death and in the news. But the crash itself, it turns out that more people might know about it than they realize.
4: Goodbye
5: to my one, goodbye Rosalita. And it's
3: all because of one song that kept the story alive throughout the decades, a song that has a very long, confusing title.
1: Deportee, parentheses, Plain Wreck at Los Gatos. And it's sung here by Pete Seeger, a super famous American folk music icon.
4: 600 miles to that Mexico border They chase us like outlaws and But
3: Pete like didn't write the song. he just
1: made it famous in the 1950s. Pete's good friend Woody Guthrie wrote it. When Woody heard about the crash on the radio, he felt this strong sense of injustice. So he
4: wrote his feelings down as a poem and it later became the song. Who are all these friends all
5: scattered like dry leaves radio says
1: they are just deportees.
3: Who are these friends who are scattered like dried leaves? The radio said
1: they were just deportees.
3: These kinds of poems and lyrics were not unusual for Woody Guthrie. He was always sort of a revolutionary.
10: Woody was kind of the embodiment of your quote-unquote everyman in the sense that he lived and worked and wrote and traveled among the people. I'm Nora Guthrie, and I'm Woody Guthrie's daughter. We called Nora to find out why Woody wrote this. There was a very strong similarity between the migrant workers in the 1930s and the Okies in the 1930s. The Okies were
1: farmers in Arkansas, Kansas, Tennessee, and, of course, Oklahoma. They lost their
10: homes during the Dust Bowl and migrated to California. Woody Guthrie was one of these people. When Woody came to California, he was homeless, living in tents and little tin shacks and so were the Mexican field workers. (laughs) They're kind of all in the same boat and I think that just instinctively he connected with their plight. He didn't start out to be political, he started out just being curious. So he would always dig further and further uh, into the news reports and that was what happened with the plane wreck at Los Gatos.
3: Somewhere along the way, Pete Seeger, who was Woody's friend, got a hold of the poem, set it to music, and started singing it. Then, the song got huge. It took on a life of its own and was covered by dozens of musicians.
4: Johnny Cash, Johnny Rodriguez. The crops are
13: all in, and the beaches beaches
1: are
16: are rotten. Dolly Parton. The oranges. John Baez, Bob Dylan,
14: Bruce
16: Springsteen,
1: and Woody's son Arlo Guthrie.
3: So you have all these super famous all-American music icons singing about
1: Mexican farm workers in the 1940s. And it's really crazy because this song was sung throughout the decades, and yet nobody bothered to find out who these people were.
10: And my father left a lot of songs like this. Sometimes I call them like seeds to be harvested by the next generation. So the the thing is that he left this song with the question why weren't the deportees
9: named? they will call These were the words that
2: kept sort of I kept humming in my head all they will call you will be deported. all they will call. You. Uh, I'm Tim Hernandez, and I'm the author who's been working on this plane work Los Catos for the last uh, seven years. And the name of your book is? The name of my book is All They Will
1: Call You. So here's where Tim comes in. He's a professor and an author, so he's always sort of digging for stories. One day, Tim was doing research for something unrelated back in 2010, when he came across
2: a newspaper article. And it said 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunge to earth, and, and it was a farm labor accident.
3: So Tim was like, weird, that sounds familiar. And he realized that it was the same story as the one he knew from the song. And the same way that Woody Guthrie was bothered by the injustice decades ago, Tim, too, wanted resolution for the families of the victims. So Tim set off on a quest.
2: You know, I just let my curiosity sort of pull me, and I began to ask, who is all, and who are they, and what do they call you? And, and that's uh, that's just what kept me going. That was the A quest
3: that over the years became more and more personal for Tim, as he saw the similarities between his life growing up in the Central Valley and the migrant farm workers who died that day.
2: You know, growing up the son of migrant farm workers, I saw firsthand the moments where my family uh, felt voiceless, and, um, and I started to see them play out as I got older, not beyond my family. I'd see them play out in the broader community, you know. Tim put himself in the shoes of these 28 families
1: and thought, this could have been me. This could have been my family.
2: I was born and raised here in California's San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural hub here. Uh, My parents were actually migrant farm workers, originally from South Texas and New Mexico. You know, kind of growing up with migrant family, uh, you know, we traveled a lot, quite a bit, working in different fields and different harvests um, throughout the year. And my parents did that pretty much, uh, you know, up until, I don't know, I was about maybe eight or nine.
3: And although Tim's family didn't participate in the Bracero program, they did spend generations working the fields in Texas and California.
20: Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor.
3: The Bracero program, to summarize, was a seasonal worker program that was a sort of amicable agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that went on from the early 40s to the mid-60s. At that time, the U.S. desperately needed workers to pick fruits and vegetables.
20: It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens.
3: So they gave Mexican farm workers temporary permits to come here and do the work. Millions of Mexican workers came and went.
1: When the harvesting season was over and the U.S. government didn't need them anymore, they would send them back by train or fly them by plane. And that morning, that's exactly what was happening.
3: Those 28 migrant workers were flying from San Francisco to El Centro, right on the border with Mexico, in a U.S. government chartered plane.
1: So based on Tim's research and interviews with the families over the years, here's what happened after the crash. Officials recovered as many scattered body parts as they could. Then, they formally notified the families of the four Americans and sent them caskets of pieced-together remains, some as far as upstate New York. As for the Mexican passengers, the leftover body parts were
3: also put in caskets, but they were not sent back to Mexico. They were buried in that mass grave we mentioned earlier, 14 on one side, 14 on the other in Fresno,
1: California. So the Mexican passengers' bodies were never repatriated. Some families in Mexico were notified by the Mexican government via letter. Others only heard about it on the radio. It's unclear exactly how each of the families found out, and if they even knew where their loved ones were buried. We reached out to the
3: Mexican government officials at the embassy in D.C., but were denied an interview. Of course, we weren't going to find people working there who were working for the Mexican government 70 years ago, but we wanted to know how the government handled this. An official said via email that today their policy is to help families in Mexico find funeral homes and cremation services in the U.S., and that based on the family's financial need, the Mexican government can help them pay for part of the cost of
1: getting their remains
3: back to Mexico.
1: We also wanted to know how only some of the victims of the crash ended up identified. So to find out, we flew to meet Tim Hernandez in
2: California.
0: This is all cattle territory up here. It's uh, Los Gatos Canyon. It's all ranchers.
3: In
2: fact, Larry's family um, were cattle ranchers up there. They were correct.
3: And oh we so, did you see the baby cows? I'm
1: sorry. No. They were the cutest little <laughs> baby cows.
0: <laughs> did you see the big long horns earlier? Yes. Yeah.
1: We're driving to Colinga about an hour southwest from Fresno with Tim and his friend Larry Hawes. Larry's a Harley-riding, leather-vest-wearing white guy. He's sort of Tim's sidekick and an unofficial historian of his own family, the
3: family
2: that owned the property where the plane crashed 70 years ago. It's hard every turn, looks the same here, unless you know exactly where the crash happened, so then that's where probably one call and find Larry's for the Gaston family, so that I could identify exactly where it happened.
3: I have to ask, what are
6: we-